1: Came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA.
0: Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. And freedom will be defended. The Los Angeles Police Department is made up of approximately 10,000 officers. Officers who are responsible for the policing and safety of 9.5 million people who live within its geographical boundaries. In this incredible episode of Protect and Serve, we talk to one of these former officers who served in one of the most notorious precincts within Los Angeles Police Department, where responding to homicides, robberies and other serious violent crime was just another day on patrol. Former Los Angeles Police Department SWAT officer Charles Joe had an incredible policing career. From serving on special robbery squads to Mounted Division and then finally to the world-renowned LAPD SWAT team, Charles Joe has just about experienced everything policing can throw at someone. Charles is a very humble and down-to-earth cop, a guy who has the needs of others at the forefront of his mind and whose love of public service and looking out for his community is what drove his desire to turn up day in and day out, to protect and serve those that needed him, often at times of crisis and desperation in dangerous and unpredictable situations. This episode is a roller coaster ride of courage, resilience, empathy and total dedication. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. All right, well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. Um, We've got a fantastically interesting episode um, this morning. Um, We've woken up extremely late. It's uh, two o'clock in the morning here, it's uh, six o'clock in the evening in Los Angeles, and I'm incredibly honored to be joined by Charles Joe from uh, LAPD's. Uh, special weapons and tactics team, now retired, but has had an incredible career dating back to the late 90s into the late 2000s, early 2020s. Charles, welcome to the podcast this morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing very
1: well. Thank you, Oliver, for having me.
0: No, no, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm I'm really excited to get into this episode. We've done a couple of chats with American guests, but uh, you're the first uh first officer that's come on with the experiences in the sort of special weapons and tactics environment in terms of that higher level of enforcement that's often needed in confrontational issues but before we go to those latter parts of your career I always start by asking my guests why policing when you first uh, but you were a young man why did you choose a career in policing
1: that's probably the toughest question I'm gonna be asked this whole podcast (laughs) I think uh, for me whenever i was asked that it was something that is something intangible um i'm not sure if i wrote out or explained uh, on my bio prior to becoming a police officer i was a high school teacher for six six years um and something inside of me i guess was restless and a good friend of mine who was in we were in college at the same time he went into finance we kept in touch, and he called me out of the blue one day. He said, I don't think I can do this anymore. And I said, wow, you read my mind. I was kind of having the same uh, feelings every day, looking at the clock, waiting for it to end so I can get out of there and go home. Uh, I ran two successful – I owned two successful martial arts studios um, during the same time as well. So my week was split from teaching at the high school and then immediately after going to open up the studio teaching that in the evening till 10 30 at night or so and then weekends um spent all day teaching there and it was fulfilling but something was was missing and i really couldn't tell you what prompted me or what really led me to that it was just one of those i'd say divine um interventions where i said i just do it now or you forever, you know, regret it. And at that time I was 25 and a half. And I said, I think I'm going to make that jump. And I did. So that's, you know, kind of a long winded way around how, how I came about that. But I think uh, once again, going past uh, my father, who was a rock Marine, Republic of Korea, South Korea Marine, he did two tours in Vietnam. Um, he was a philosophy major and then he did two tours in Vietnam and he kept on saying, I didn't go through all that for you to not have a degree or a skill set. So you go to college and he wanted to be a DB engineer. Um, and I went in, in that major and hated it. And then I ended up um, graduating with a sociology degree. So it kind of zigzagged all over the place. Really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I wanted to be, I guess kind of like interacting place of I guess public service, if I can say that, where where I didn't even know that that's where I was leaning towards, you know, and then and then dealing with people, teaching martial arts and all that, and one day I became, you know, I told my mom, and she said she was really concerned. But wasn't too discouraged. And then the month before I graduated, we have a ceremony at LAPD where they you give you your badge. The senior class gets to get um, pinned their badge. So when I got my badge pinned, I had my, my wife at the time. We newly got married two months before the academy started. So she went through, you know, uh, same up and down journeys uh, with me. And she started her career as a teacher, teacher at the same time. So she got to pin my badge and my mom was very emotional during that time. And I said, you know, I've got another month left. I don't, I still have time to go. And she said, your dad would have been very proud. Oh, my dad passed away um, a year before I started the academy um, from a a, a stroke. So it was kind of surreal that he had no idea I was going to go even uh, entertained going to this field. He thought, you know, being a teacher, attempted an engineer, decided that's not for me. Became a teacher and and a business owner. He thought, okay, that's good. And then after his passing, when I decided to become a police officer, I think my mom was kind of like, wow, your dad would have been pretty proud. And that kind of hit home and kind of solidified maybe this is the right choice. So a long-winded answer to that short question, but I felt... I needed to give you that little back history on
0: my journey
1: and how unorthodox, as you will soon see and hear, uh, it, it became.
0: How did you find the academy as a young man in terms of the academic requirements? And I suppose during your training, was there ever a, um, an understanding that policing was going to offer you personal challenges in the types of work that you would be doing once you graduated? I
1: think the good thing for me at that time was the naive, um, as far as approach to that whole career. And as far as the ignorance, not having a prior military, not having family members that were in law enforcement really didn't know what to expect. So when I came in, um, not having fired a, a firearm or pistol before, of academy um not really I I was always an athlete you know I I swam played water polo in high school and I did martial arts so the 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 athletic um challenges weren't too daunting but uh the whole culture the whole profession I was clueless to it so I think in that sense it was good I didn't have anything to base myself or have any fears or trepidation because I really didn't know what I was getting into. Every day was kind of a a new um, challenge and just took it a day at a time. And that sense, um, I think that helped me in a sense. I just said, just need to get through this day. And I I had a friend whose father was retired LAPD. He was a motor officer. And his advice to me was, and he wasn't really – mentoring me or guiding me through the process. He just helped me. He taught me how to spit shot my boots, (laughs) excuse me. And basically his advice to me in the academy was don't be the best. Don't be the worst. Just get through right in the middle and just stay in there. And the academy is just you to get through. And then you're going to learn once you get in the streets. Mm -hmm. So I took that to heart, buttoning up, as long as you pay attention in class, and, and absorb 80% of your learning is pretty much done in class. The, the type of learner I am, I found to be, was um, they call it a kinesthetic learner, right? Hands-on. And there's a, there's an audio learner, a visual learner, and I tend to be hands-on. So the most I got was by being in class, by engaging listening, um, pretty much was... My way of kind of absorbing everything and follow up homework at home was just a little uh, extra touch up reference, but yeah, that's that's how I once I clicked and said, did that uh, the academy academically was wasn't as challenging per se because only it was only a few years prior to that that I was you know out of college and I was actually in the academic field, high, teaching high school, so it wasn't that much of a um, big leap um the academy it was it was pretty fun if you if i think back on it
0: and um, that was gonna be my next question is are there days that you look at back on fondly in terms of you reflect on those with a great sense of enjoyment and you got lots of fulfillment out of those academy days
1: definitely in in hindsight in in hindsight i look back and you know with mm. talking with classmates and um with my 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 wife who has funny stories of me coming home, just absolutely exhausted and wrecked. But then <laughs> having to practice Spanish on her, on how to take a suspect into a custody and being compliant in Spanish. Cause that was a, a strong, I think 120 hours we had wow. to learn, because in Los Angeles, even though it's such a melting pot, the, the secondary language that they uh, impressed upon and had to learn was Spanish so became quite fluent uh, especially going from there into rampart having to you know always um, use and practice spanish on a daily basis but so my wife would tell friends joking around yeah i, you know, I was a suspect that he would speak spanish to and get me to you know prone out like uh, an <laughs> airplane hand me on the back and do all that and you know so i i practiced at home uh, on her a lot uh, and the the whole. There are days where I absolutely dreaded it. I absolutely dreaded it. Um, they would PTS to the ground at that time. They really didn't have any limits per se on what they could do do to you. Now there's a lot of limits. They can't run you more than three miles and all these different things. Back then, they pretty much had their way with us on you know Black Friday, Black Week, and we were just you know pummeled for back there was no reason. Now understand there's a, if if we had a big class too, uh, we hmm. started with a uh, hundred and I wanna say 12, we graduated with 96. So since the mid nineties, they had a really big hiring freeze for the longest time in the early nineties. And once they opened up hiring, they were trying to play catch up. So classes were every month, 100, 95, 90, 100, you know, size classes coming through. So it was chaotic to say the least, coming through and trying to get all the squads and learning all our drills, formations, and then firearms and <clears throat> uh, uh, defensive tactics, everything at the trying to get and cram on a, on a huge class. So I still to this day haven't seen probably a third or more of my classmates since graduation because the city's so big.
0: Wow. That's. The, the, the one thing I always ask, and it's a similarity between Australian policing, where I have experience, and the US, is the fact on graduation, you do carry a firearm. And for those people that haven't had exposure to firearms before, it can often be a sense of huge responsibility in terms of now having this tactical option, which is available to you to be able to end the most serious of situations. Did that ever, you know, what was that? what was that responsibility like in your mind in terms of understanding when you graduate you had the potential to use lethal force at such a young age did you kind of stop to recognize responsibility that had been given to you at that time
1: most definitely they had several classes in the academy where one specifically on um, off-duty when you're off-duty off-duty conduct and off-duty actions Mm -hmm. and they showed Case after case, officers um, getting involved with with crimes in progress, and they're saying you don't have backup, you don't have all your no. gear, you don't have all your radio, all the stuff. So it's it's more to your detriment, especially yeah. if if the uh, the local, uh, if you're in another jurisdiction, another department, but the local officers are responding, they see you in plain clothes with a gun in your hand, trying to you know intervene, or you might be subject to um, getting getting shot or, or, you know, assaulted as well. So there's a whole class on off-duty conduct. Wow. So they, they impress on uh, us young recruits because you're just dying, itching to go out there and prove your assault and get out yeah. there. So they try to, te- you know, temper that and, and give you these, these classes on uh, off-duty conduct and off to the end. Back then in the mid nineties, um, L.A., was going through, I'd say currently what it's going through now as well. There's a very strong uptick in crime, murder waves and all that. So we were getting our fair share of work on duty and uh, off duty. So that is a big response. But I remember the first time off duty after graduation, um, I walked through the mall with my wife, I think another couple, and I was carrying my my issue duty Beretta concealed. And I thought I was walking through the mall with a big cannon on my waist waistband. Nobody could see it, but I felt like, Holy moly, I'm walking through this huge cannon. Everybody must know that I have, I've got this big gun in my waistband, you know, and how, wow. I think, I think if you were to study my mannerisms and the looks of my face, probably look like something's wrong with him, you know, but, um, that's just the, just just the naive and the learning curve at the time of the young, um, officer and, uh, yeah, so that's a mindset. You really, I um, took that responsibility pretty seriously.
0: Well, you graduated after your training to the Rampart Division, which is an infamous division, infamous for the Rafael Perez era for where they made the movie Training Day. And, and you worked there as a patrol officer now. You know, in my research looking at the Rampart Division, there's a number of issues that go on there, you know, in terms of criminal street gangs, organized crime, for a young officer, was that a fairly overwhelming environment to be placed into for your first posting, and how did you deal with the challenges?
1: Um, it was – I'd say I wouldn't have changed it for anything looking back. I'm I'm so fortunate that I was able to um, do my probation in the division such as that. I think it molded me to um, the next step and phase that kind of guided me to the, 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 the direction – and where I wanted my career I think ultimately knowingly or not but because that division was so inundated with crime and gang and everything you could think about was was there um the reason why rampart division became so infamous is a few years prior um uh, Fidel Castro in Cuba released all his of uh, Inmates in the in the insane asylums, and they all came over to um, United States, and they were um, a lot of them immigrated, settled in Florida, Miami, and LA Rampart Division. So Miami, where that's where the around the same era where that movie Scarface um, was was uh, you know emulated all that going on, all the craziness and all the war, uh, drug um, control war, all that. Well, same same thing was going on in rampart division enough fentanyl to kill almost half a million people recovered by lapd lapd's rampart division posted pictures and a video of officers searching what appears to be an encampment a multi-agency operation is making gang arrests in downtown la a major gang bust in los angeles today hundreds of law enforcement officers targeted suspected gang members everyone all the wow. cuban uh, refugees came and settled in rampart division um, barbers on hotel and other different areas so we were experiencing that that type of chaos at that time as well so um what it did was it made uh, someone like me myself who had no military or prior police experience really learn the trade if you will or the skill set of law enforcement um properly and to say it properly mean our tactics at that time, Rampart Division was very, very well known in the in the department of having one of the um, toughest or the tightest tactics of as patrol officers. You hear Rampart Seventy Seventh Division, which is South Central Southeast Division. They had reputations of being putting out some really um, uh, tactically skilled patrol officers. They're real tight. So I learned. Uh, I, I was basically a clean slate so i learned from didn't really develop any bad habits you didn't have time per se or the luxury we were handling stabbings and shootings and vehicle pursuits and foot pursuit chases like multiple a a night so that you really had to hone yourself uh and be as efficient as possible so um trial by fire, if you will, and uh, you either made it or you got wheeled to another division that's slow, slower paced and, you know, hopefully you can pick up and uh, make probation. But uh, I was fortunate enough to um, get, um, I guess, take it into a special problems unit while I was there. After six months, you have the – if you are demonstrating um, a level of, of competency or excelling, then they were able to – because. It, we had such so many influx of probationers, the ones that I guess excelled or show, demonstrated some um, higher level of proficiency, they pulled them into specialized units. So, the last six months of my one year probation, I was able to write it out in a specialized unit where I learned even more small uh, unit tactics, communication, and so forth. In the in the, we call it a SPEW unit, special problems unit. And from there, I uh, enjoyed and really relished the. Camaraderie, the tactics, all uh, the small unit tactics that we were able to, you know, um, uh, utilize, combating all the gangs and all the other um, crimes that was out there. So I, I forged who I was, my foundation. And after that year, when after a year of, of probation at whatever division you're at, you're you're wheeled. They call it wheeled. You're forced to transfer out. Uh, for several reasons, but primarily, I mean, you're done with the probation. You, you don't want to stay in a division where you just completed your probation because mm-hmm. you'll all be looked at a pro, looked as a probationer. So tradition was after your years up, you wheel to another bureau. So the city is divided to four bureaus, which has about approximately five, four or five precincts, if you will, divisions. And you would completely move to a, a separate bureau as a full-fledged police officer now. So that's usually what happens.
0: Interesting question is that, um, sadly, I think for us outside of America, have got used to seeing quite extensive, well, at times quite extensive gun violence and gun crime, whether that be through documentaries or through the tragic shootings that we've seen at educational facilities in the US.
1: America, here we are again. This is not a new nightmare. It is a recurring one. Another mass shooting, this time Texas. At least 19 children murdered, shot dead with a high-powered rifle. Two teachers also killed. But We uh, in this city joined a long list of cities this year that have had school shootings. As you can imagine, it is a challenging, difficult morning. George is on the scene in Florida where another community is in disbelief, shocked by devastating violence, this time at that Florida
0: high school on Valentine's Day. Obviously working in Rampart Division, in the years that you did you would have seen a lot of murder you would have seen a lot of shootings how did you deal with the emotional side of that that side of policing in terms of confronting scenes ones that often one doesn't know how you're going to respond to such incidents until you're met with it so I'm keen to understand how you kind of process those often difficult situations
1: for myself I think um, starting my journey at such a busy division um, helped me compartmentalize um, the tragedies and the the crime and the death and all that I I, I didn't have time to dwell on it I didn't have time to we were we'd handle two or three stabbings or or robberies a night so once you uh, finish up on one you compartmentalize it and then you move on to the next and so on and so forth and for me that was a learning curve but it helped me to understand that Work is work, home is home, friend is friend, church is church. And from work, it allowed me to, it taught me to keep whatever at work is work. The only time it really hit home where I had a little bit harder time um, understanding or dealing with it is when the victim reminded me or resembled someone I was uh, had close to me or dear to me, family members or my son or so forth. I had one call where we had a, a SIDS um, patient, a young 10-month-old baby um, boy at the hospital that tragically passed away, and I had to conduct the investigation. And my son at home was about the same age. So after having dealt with that, I got home, I think it was 2, 3 in the morning uh, after my shift came, uh, came home and went straight to his room and picked him up and had to walk him around. Holding him in my arms that night for I don't know thirty minutes to an hour until I could kind of decompress and know mm. that hey he's still there. So that I I hold I had I feel fortunate that I had the opportunity to at least decompress and um, I guess bring myself back home with that. Unfortunately that w- was what I had to deal with at work and and console the parents and do all that. That's that's part of the work, but had the opportunity. So when it ties close to home, mm-hmm. when, when those similarities are there, then it does get hard at times, but it is a, um, a process where you compartmentalize, you know, and there were ups and downs where I, several years, I was able to go inside and be an instructor at the academy where I wasn't exposed too much, but then soon came out and saw a, a lot of, um, Very unusual, very high stressful situation that we're in. And I think my my probation years helped me deal with all that because of such a fast pace, such a um, crime ridden exposure handling at such a pace that allowed me to just really focus and compartmentalize the things that I did see.
0: We often talk about on the podcast, um, the vocation of policing is undertaken by ordinary people doing extraordinary work. And I've often said some of the, the greatest unsung heroes are the family members that sit behind police officers, husbands and wives and family members who you're able to kind of debrief to. You know, assuming you had such a fantastic support network behind you to, to kind of be able to debrief, was that, a good, was that a good opportunity for you to be able to talk through your experiences or, or did you shield your family, family from some of the exposures that you were going through?
1: Um, I think I shielded more than I exposed them to. Uh, even my wife, so I would bring home the funny stories, that yeah. we can laugh laugh about, and because bringing home the grit and the you know the the somber reality of crime to someone who hasn't the slightest understanding of where it 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 you know from resonate from it's hard hard to really express and explain in detail all that so you know they i'm not going to um re-describe or reimagine what their perception is i think my uh they they know when i go to work i i will occasionally see tragedy or get involved with them so that's all they need to know i don't have to come back and and put that into a 4k vision you know a 3d model i just bring back the funny things that happened that i think we can laugh about so and that helped me to i think have a uh, a safe place where i could come and just decompress and so forth and um have other outlets of uh, friends like-minded friends that we can't uh i guess share and discuss things that we wanted to but yeah i pride myself to not bringing any of that stuff home i i think mm-hmm. that's more um, I guess destructive, than positive. You have to find yeah. a way to um, have an out, outlet outside of work that you could do. Where most of my friends that I've curated over my career, um, very balanced, uh, if yeah. not leaning more. Eighty percent of them were non-cops um, in, in law enforcement field. So it helped me be grounded in reality, so to speak. Then the the day-to-day uh, exposure of stuff i don't see that as as the day-to-day reality that's just a hyper sensitive tune to crime right that's not day-to-day where most people see so you need that um to have that good balance i'd say
0: and there's you know we look back historically at policing in the past couple of decades and using words such as mental health and Post-traumatic stress disorder and um, acute stress, all these different terms that when I was policing from the 2005 era, um, you know, these are words that just weren't used. And if they were used, then sometimes it could be seen as a bit of a position of weakness. So we we generally didn't use words and those words certainly weren't around. We didn't have the support networks, which I think are being introduced today they certainly are into british policing they certainly are into australian policing is are you familiar with that is is you know mental health and issues like that were probably not things that were spoken about in your era of policing
1: it it wasn't as um encouraged or spoken so openly um mm. during my uh i guess earlier years of uh, um, policing career however the last decade it's been uh, openly shared it's been encouraged um, and I'm a big proponent of, of, uh, sharing, expressing, um, those symptoms, if you will, of PTSD or of, of just a mental illness and mental, mental illness back then was such a, um, negative stigma, whereas now it's, it encompasses so much, you know, mm. um, depression, confusion, loneliness. There's so many other things that I think falls in that basket where, I encourage um, recently. So in my retirement, uh, I'm also a reserve. I still stayed as a reserve for a SWAT. Yeah. Um, and I, I serve that as more of an ambassador to the team in the department, outreach outside agencies. I run several mentor men's groups where ra- different ranks of police officers from former police chiefs to assistant chiefs to brand new probation as we get together periodically encourage each other and and i'm a big proponent of the mental health aspect of it Um, i think i've been exposed so much to that as a negotiator um, responding to suicide attempts from hostage rescues to barricades they all have that mental um, uh, illness component to it and i think i see the i connect the dots in that so i i think other officers, um, trust in that, see me as a credible, um, Mm -hmm. spokesperson for that because of all the critical instances I've been to, I can validate and say, Hey, it's okay to not, not be okay. And that's, it's, it's ironic, but it's, it's coincidental that I'm kind of spearheading that in a group here. And that is a big push. It has been a big push over the years, but I think we are as a culture in America, policing, we're becoming a lot more we're warming up to the idea mm-hmm. of it's okay not to be okay. And yeah. you see that across even professional sports, yeah. they're coming out more and they're encouraging you know that it's it's okay to not be okay and that's one of those things I think as a whole culturally from all aspects, I think we're accepting more um, uh, with with that concept and notion.
0: I want to skip ahead a little bit to 2007 to 2008 where you were selected to um, the mounted unit, which is crowd control on horseback, crime suppression on horseback and general policing activities with the utilisation of mounted policing. Now, we haven't had anybody on the show yet who's had exposure and experience of policing with a horse, which must be a very unique experience. I just wanted to talk us through... What captured your interest to move into that area of policing? Because your next big step was into SWAT. But I'm keen just to understand kind of what pushed you in the direction of the uh, the mounted unit.
1: And funny you say that. I think looking back, none of my career paths were um, intentionally or strategically planned out. It wasn't plotted out. At this time, I'm going to go apply for a mounted unit. Or at this time, I want to try for a metropolitan division. It was just kind of seemed like the right thing at the time. But I can say unequivocally, Mounted Unit was one of my most memorable, enjoyable stints in my career um, for several reasons. But uh, I was hitting kind of a lull, uh, burnout stage in the Metropolitan Division. And when I first got into Metropolitan Division two thousand three, 2003, um, that's when I started having inclinations of maybe I do want or have a crack at SWAT one day. And that's kind of like a stepping stone. It's always been historically a stepping stone. You go into the metropolitan Division, and within the division, there's nine, mounted unit, and SWAT. Mm. And my partner, when I went into Metro Bond Division with uh together for or he was a senior to me then, and he said he's gonna go to mounted unit. And I said, I don't know why you wanna go ride horses or go to mounted unit. I had never, you know, <laughs> had any interest or inclination in that. So is like a year and a half, two years into my four year um, tenure at at in Metro. I, he said, you got to come with me. It's the best place, best kept secret of the department. And I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I, I don't want anything to do with horses. No, <laughs> and I kept on sh- shining him off, shining him off. And at that point, um, I had my eye on SWAT. I'm hoping when did the trials coming out? When are the trials? I waited Wait, it wasn't coming out. At some point I said, you know, I'm so burnt out with the daily day day in, um, details that we're doing. I need something different, and so I called him up. I said, "Hey, let's 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 do a ride along. I want to come by and visit." So I did, and it was wow! Such a it was such a foreign um, place for me to want to do my career. Meaning, really didn't have any inclination or any desire it wasn't even on my radar even remotely to want to do that i i saw them through my career i saw hey but never even the slightest i said why not i'll take that leap of faith i did it and during the oral i um the oral board basically it was very truthful i said i really have no horsemanship experience uh, mm-hmm. i want to eventually try for a swat So I can't commit because normally when you go to a specialized unit, they expect three to five years commitment, It's an unwritten rule, three to five years commitment, because they're investing all their time, energy, Mm -hmm. training, you Mm -hmm. equipment, all that. They expect you to give them back at least five years. So I said, you know what I think rumor is there's going to be a SWAT tryout around the corner sometime Mm -hmm. within a year, two, three, I'm not sure. But I have to let you let, let you see all my cards. That's where I want to eventually get to. However, I'm fascinated by this um unit. And I can guarantee you the short or long term that I've been here, I'm gonna give you my hundred percent. I think I have a lot to offer in a sense of defensive tactics and so forth, but I really wanna give a crack at it. So the board <laughs> was fascinated by my eagerness and my willingness. They said Okay, we 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 respect your candid um, approach to it, and we want to take you on. So, the great and the <laughs> first day, it's a five week horsemanship school. How you every day on the horse, you learn all that there is to learn about the horse, um, because you're looking at eight hundred, twelve hundred pound animal that you have to be around little kids, mothers with strollers at the at Venice Beach, and you have to be able to control. Not only every quarter of the horse, every section, every, every aspect of the horse, um, moving the rear hind quarter, two inches to the right, you know, backing it up, which is an unnatural, um, movement in the horse in the, in the wild, they never back up. They don't know the backup. So you have to be able to control the horse to that degree because of potential liability. And you have to be able to fully, you know, lope or gallop across you know, uh, uh, streets and fields and so forth. So there's a lot of horsemanship that goes in involved. In my first day, I found out I was very allergic to Timothy hay and the the straw that they're fed. So <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> I go home and my nose is stopped up, my eyes are shut. And what did I get myself into? And oh, nice. for three days, I'm at work trying to get through. No sleep. By, uh, by all means, because I can't breathe in my nose. So I'm breathing through my mouth at night. I can't sleep. My wake up. My throat is dry, and I, I can't make sense of just getting through the day. So I called a good friend of mine who happened to be a, a internal medicine doctor. And I said, "Explain to him my my predicament, my situation," and he prescribed me um, some allergy nasal um, prescription uh, uh, drugs next day, I shot to spray up my nose, and that was it. Cured me for the rest of, the, of the, my stint there. And I don't know what he did, wow. but that was great. I was able to get through the five weeks of the horsemanship school, passed it. And um, best time of my career. Amazing time, because the uniqueness of LAPD's mounted unit, we actually did crime fighting on mm-hmm. horseback. Unlike other departments, it was more crowd control. It was more PR. It was more, they wore uh, motorcycle helmets. We actually wore cowboy Stetsons. We wore Wrangler jeans with, you know, black cowboy boots with spurs on them and with our uniform police shirt top with our badge and all the things. So it was a very unique, pretty cool looking ensemble. And we went through Skid Row, we went to Hollywood, we went to Venice Beach on horseback, and up and down your horse, which happens to be up to 15 hands, that's how they measured the horse, pretty tall, up and down probably 25, 30 times a shift. You get off, you talk with individual suspects, you run them for warrant, warrant checks, so forth to get back on the horse, and then you move on. If there's an arrest, you radio that into the chase van, would come in and take your body to the station, put them on the bench while you continued your um, crime suppression. And you would maybe two or three arrests at one time. And then when you're done, you put your horse back in the trailer. And we had other officers that were working that they decided they want to be, we take turns on trailering the horses back and forth. So you would have your patrol car there, your your plane car with a partner, go to the division. You'd have three of your arrestees there, process them book them, write your report, go home. And that was kind of, and then when we had civil unrest, we had um, big crowd control. We would armor up our horses with the big face shields, pads on us, and the horses knew. Horses Mm. knew that something was up, and they actually, (laughs) you you feel the electricity, and when we get on a skirmish line, it's going, looking at your fellow officers, left and right of you, and then you look at a mob of protesters, you know, anti war protesters took over all of Hollywood Boulevard. And you're there, that line of uh, horses with uh, you and your your coworkers. And it's like, wow, this is amazing. You know, and then you have deep, big skirmishes with these protesters waving signs, throwing bottles, rocks, and bottles at you, and trying to keep your horse calm, but push the line and clear the street. It was one of the most exhilarating memories that I could um, say that I take back. Uh, take with me um, with this career. It was it was a pleasure. And then on the downside during the summer months, we'd hang out at Venice Beach and just be there to watch and hang out in the sun and the sand and How you know, say hi to people and be that visual kind of presence uh, um, during the summer months there. So best of both worlds, you know, walking, copping your hot horse up and down Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> Certain things they they tell you do not do is do not <laughs> ride your horse or walk your horse up on the sidewalk in Hollywood where the um, the sidewalk, the stars, Hollywood stars are all there.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because the sidewalks are made of marble and the horses, the shoes, they have carbide um, nails in it to grip into concrete. But once they go on marble, it's like a oh. horse on ice. They're like oh. on ice skates. So they tell you just don't go up on the sidewalk. Other than that, you know, you can, much do whatever you want so it was a it was a great time to say the least um and 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 it was very short-lived it was maybe a year and a half at most that i was there before the swat trials came out if i had to go back my only regret was not doing a longer stint in that unit before going to swat
0: you're listening to part one of my chat with former lapd swat officer charles joe In episode two, Charles walks us through one of the most terrifying hostage situations he encountered shortly before retiring. An incident which for the first time ever he is providing a first-hand account of his team's involvement in the resolution of an incident which started after an elderly lady was shot seven times by an offender who was known to her. This shooting led to a dramatic police pursuit. A police pursuit which would come to an end but sadly lead to the tragic death of a bystander who was caught in the exchange of gunfire between police and the suspect.
1: As one of the officers races to take cover behind a wall, you can hear what sounds like a bullet ricocheting off a pole.
0: All this and more, next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.